0: Journeys of Discovery, Surgeons at Sea, ADM 101 Research Symposium. The Potential of ADM 101 for Future Research, presented by Professor Lawrence Brockless. And Our final presentation this afternoon is from Professor Lawrence Brockless from Oxford. He's going to be talking about the use of ADM 101 for future research. Um, he was going to be accompanied by his colleague, Dr John Cardwell, but unfortunately John isn't able to be with us this afternoon, sadly. So... Lawrence is going to have to perform on his own. Right. Well, th- thank you very much. Let, let me say, first of all, that um, I think I'm here because, as a medical historian, I have actually used ADM 101 and am using ADM 101. So I suppose I'm one of the customers who the archives would like to, to hear from. Second point I think I should make is that my acquaintance with this series only covers the first part. The work that I and my my team have been doing over the last 10 years concerns army and naval surgeons who served during the, the French wars from 1793 to 1815. So I really have no acquaintance at all with any of these logs later than about 1830. Now, as we were hearing earlier this afternoon, it's clearly after that date that in some ways they become more interesting as there's more and more data in them. But I'm afraid I can't really offer any thoughts on the, the utility of those later logs, except, I suppose, common sense thoughts that I suspect all of you will have. And the third thing to say, and that's already been raised, is that unfortunately, um, probably the most important member of my team, John Cardwell, is not here. Now, John was actually going to give the presentation this afternoon. I was a sort of window dressing, was going to make a few comments at the end. So I'm very much relying on what John has left me. I've never seen anything he's put together. (laughs) So um, I am flying by the seat of my pants, and this may all go terribly wrong. Given that I've only got a short period of time, I thought that probably, the best way to, to tackle this will be to say a few things, first of all, about how we have been using ADM 101 over the last 10 years, and then offer some suggestions as to how this new digitized source is going to aid our work. Now, there are three projects that we've been involved in, which in some way or other have used this particular series, and I'll just outline them quite quickly. The first is the construction of a prospographical database of naval surgeons who served during the French Revolutionary Wars. This is a complementary database to one that we have already completed of army surgeons who served with the British Army during the same period. I've got a copy of this database here. But you can see from the vast array of tables that are listed down the side all the various things that we've been looking at we've been trying to basically build up a complete profile of surgeons their background education career in the relevant service um, what happened to them when they came out what qualifications they may have got um, what publications they may have produced this was something again that was earlier, Um, and ultimately, actually, how much they were worth when they died. And um, if I had time, I could show you the wealth tables, and you'd be quite surprised at how much money some of them have managed to put together. And most of these people, by the way, in both the Army and Navy, came from relatively humble backgrounds. Their fathers were, were tenant farmers, small merchants, sometimes medical men, but very rarely medical men. One of the reasons they go into the uh, medical services of the armed forces is because actually they don't have the, the social and cultural capital to go back to a decent town in the United Kingdom and set up their plate. They basically don't have patrons, so they go into the army and navy in order to obtain um, the right kind of, of friends through being in the uh, um, the officers' mess and in the um, the wardroom. Now. ADM 101 has played a part in the construction of this database. Um, Not a great deal, but obviously in trying to build up a profile of the careers of our individual surgeons, obviously whether or not they left logs has been significant. But I wouldn't want to make great claims for the use of that particular series in creating the database itself. For those of you who might be interested in what you can do with the, the records, of the National Archive in relation to Army and Navy Surgeons. We did produce a book in 2005, 2006, called Advancing with the Army, which is um, our propographical study of the Army Surgeons. And in many ways, it will, I think, introduce you to the, the success story of the Army Surgeon in this period. The second project that we've been involved in, and specifically use the. ADM series was a um, biographical study of William Beatty. As our contribution to the Trafalgar bicentenary, we actually wrote a biography of Nelson surgeon. And I think this is still the only biography that's ever been written of one of these naval surgeons during the, the revolutionary period. And obviously, in writing that biography, we used the journal that's already been referred to this afternoon. That's actually a very important journal, um, especially for the biography of Beatty, for several reasons. First of all, it's the only one of his many journals he, he produced during his uh, time in the Navy that has survived. He was on 12 ships altogether, and there's only one journal that survived, and that's the one that he kept while he was on Victory from December 1804 through to early 1806. So it's a Very important biographical document, as far as BG is concerned. It's also a very interesting document for two reasons, as far as our picture of the man was concerned. Um, In the first place, there is nothing about the Battle of Trafalgar in this particular log. There's a list of the the wounded, all 102 of them, and what happened to them. But um, the actual log itself stops the day before the Battle of Trafalgar. That's very suspicious. And um, were you to read the biography, you would see the way in which we try to show that the so-called authentic narrative of Nelson's death is arguably concocted long after the event and that the, the silence of the log is not an accident. The other perhaps more important point in some respects is that the log bears out a testimony of other records that survive concerning the Mediterranean fleet at this time. And those survive actually in the Welcome Library, not here, to do with the, the health and fitness of the crews. There were, I think, 830 people on board Victory for those two years before Trafalgar. And looking quickly at my statistics, um, during the, the period up to Trafalgar while Beattie was surgeon, he lost only five men. So only five people died on victory in that period. The three of the deaths were from consumption. The other two were from accidents. This, I think, is a a remarkably low figure of fatalities during a whole year at sea, but it seems to be borne out by the experience of the the fleet generally during this period. And one of the points we were trying to make in the book was that you can't understand the victory at Trafalgar without understanding just how fit, well-fed, and healthy the crews were compared with the crews of the combined fleet, which were very unhealthy indeed. So in that particular project, the ADM series was very useful indeed. The project that we are at the moment working on is a project that in a way, much more obviously uses this particular series. And that's a study that we're making of the understanding and treatment of malaria before about 1860. The problem that has interested us is why it took something like 200 years for Chichona bark, um, or its extract we call quinine, to be used regularly throughout Europe as some sort of prophylactic for malaria. Um, From other work we'd done, we were convinced that the ways in which surgeons in the Army and Navy understood malaria and treated it was a very important part of this story. Indeed, I think we'd go further and argue that in trying to understand why eventually quinine does become the accepted remedy for malaria, you have to work from the surviving information left by Army and Navy surgeons. So obviously for that particular study these logs are very, very useful indeed. It's hard to be said that Army surgeons did not keep logs. So the information we have about what was going on in the Army uh, comes from a wide variety of uh, evidence, sometimes journals, but not from specific logs of this kind. So there are the three projects. Now um, in what way does the digitization of this particular series, helpers. Well, let me start with our database. What has been, or what can be, a real benefit for this kind of study, that we will certainly be working through in due course, is that the logs in their digitised form allow us to identify much more easily than hitherto which of the surgeons from this period actually have left logs. Remember that most of them do not. Um, I must say, this is something that hasn't been mentioned till today, before about 1830, this is not a good source for family historians. I've said that only one of Beatty's many logs have survived. If you actually look at samples of surgeons from this earlier period, only a very small proportion of them have left logs. Of our 430 surgeons that were in this database, I think there are only 60 that have left logs. Uh, For the most part, if you're a family historian looking for a log before 1830, you are unlikely to find it. That said, um, it does obviously allow us to ensure much more easily than we had done hitherto which of our surgeons left logs. And I can assure you that it was a relatively easy task to run through our 430 and identify whether they had logs or not, whereas it had taken us months to do in the past. Also, what we have been able to identify as a result of this new digitization is those surgeons in this list who have left multiple logs, there aren't many of them. Um, but there are enough for us to begin to look at careers of particular individuals in this database in a much more defined way than we'd ever done before. And I don't think without this particular source, we would have been able to do that we hadn't picked this up at all over the last 10 years in uh, just collating and collecting this data. So that's I think, been very, very useful in simply a few hours, few days work. Um, so to that extent, this um, digitized source is very important for us. Um, moving on to BT, um, BT still remains an obsession that we continue to uh, think around. I, I, one couldn't say too much about this source in relation to ongoing studies of BT. But one of the things that I discovered only a few days ago was that my belief that the authentic narrative is not authentic was given actually some credence from one of the logs that I hadn't known existed, but um, I discovered while playing around with the database. Um, I hadn't known that after the battle, the assistant surgeon of the schooner Pickle was put on board the Trafalgar, I uh, was put on the Victory, to help. Beattie and the other two surgeons look after the 102 wounded. Now, this surgeon's log survives, and surprise, surprise, for the three days he's on the victory, he says nothing at all about what went on during the battle afterwards. Obviously, in fact, he was on the victory immediately after the battle. He must have been speaking to the other surgeons and been given some sort of story of what went on. It's all the more interesting, for those of you who know your history of Trafalgar, in that the pickle was the schooner that was sent straight back to Britain to announce the victory and arrived in November 1805, virtually two months before the victory itself got back. Um, there is no sign at all that the surgeon, and he appears in our list, it's a man called Britton from Bristol, there's no sign at all that the surgeon while he was in Plymouth or when he later went up to London, because he had to take his exams, He's an assistant surgeon, and he took his exams uh, for full surgeon about Christmas of 1805, there's no sign that he said anything to anybody about what had gone on during that battle on the victory itself. Um, It seems to me that his silence, both in his log and his silence thereafter, is evidence that he'd been told to keep quiet and say nothing, and that in some way um, the officers and the the surgeon on board the victory were concocting a story that would be acceptable when they got back home. So uh, even for Beattie, I have managed with very little work whatsoever, to use this database um, that you've constructed to to good account. Now, finally, and perhaps much more importantly, the the work on malaria. And this is what John Cardwell was going to talk to you all about. And all I can do is perhaps show you some of the things that he had prepared. One of the problems that we've had over the last two or three years in working on this subject is that it is very hit and miss. John has looked at quite a lot of journals. But of course, he's had no idea at all which journal was going to have anything about malaria in it. So although he's dug up a number that are very interesting, probably for every one that he discovered, there were 10 that were of no use whatsoever. So it was a very inefficient form of research. Suddenly, almost overnight in the last two weeks, we have been able to identify, really all the journals in the period about 1793 to 1830 that are of interest for us in that they have something to say about the nature and treatment of malaria. These word searches really work. You have to be very careful because malaria was not a word that was really actually being used in the early 19th century with relation to what we call malaria. You might have noticed that um, in the previous talk when Yellow fever was being discussed. The, uh, the surgeon, was about 1859, 1860? Mm, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was actually talking about malarial miasmas while he was talking about yellow fever. And um, one of the problems, actually, that explains in part the, the slow uptake of quinine is that until, really, the middle of the 19th century, it was actually very difficult to differentiate what we would call malaria from things like yellow fever or dengue fever. So they, they, they had a very loose use of terms. So when you are doing word searches, you know, I, I would encourage all of you to try different terms. And if you want information on intermittent fever, um, don't put in malaria, put in ague, or put in lots of different. You've just got to try and keep on playing around. But there's a lot of information there. And um, it certainly has enabled us to build very, very carefully, very quickly, a list of sources that we want to pursue um, in the, the coming months and a couple of hours work has enabled us to get further than it taken us two or three years to get. And um, what John has done, I know, is find you a few choice quotes, <coughs> I think, for things that he's picked up just by playing around the database. This is something about the use of chichona and its use with, with other remedies and You see, again, the point that was again made in the last talk, the extent to which they do have some appreciation of the literature that's available, in this case, Crichton's publication. But at the same time, it's usually quite clear that they are quite happy to work on their own and through experience, their own experience, reach their own conclusions. I think, too, actually, another point about this that was made earlier... um, this character, George Lawson, Now, once you've got an individual, you can also try to construct um, the Siemens medical history and see to the extent to which someone who who has got intermittent fever is periodically laid up with it. I mean, we haven't tried this as yet, but I think that um, if it begins to be the case that some of these people are appearing quite often, that we will try and do that. And somebody, somebody was mentioning about uh, diseases of surgeons themselves but it's also quite clear that there is a lot of material in these logs about self-medication this is 1798 but you can see that again um, there is a reference to this miasmic conception of of disease intermittent caused by the exhalation of a fluvia from a low marshy swamp Um, and this i think as pointed out for is is really the way that uh, the medical profession thought about. Fever in and its causes in the, the late 18th, the first part of the 19th century. And he's got one more for you to look at, which is, is that one just seen? Or another one? No, it's a different one, isn't it? Uh, again, I think uh, giving you an idea of the, of the symptoms that were written down and also evidence that, in this case, bark is being given. But I think that the context of, of this afternoon, all I'd say is just how helpful this source is going to be for this kind of work. Um, you have got to approach it with sensitivity. i say the, the use of terms is not necessarily our use of terms. You've got to be ready to put in different words, play about with them, and see what comes out. But it makes the, the, I suppose the, the life of the, the medical historian trying to produce accounts of particular to use a particular time so much easier than it's been hitherto. So for that reason alone, I I applaud this particular initiative. And uh, I can assure you that there will be some medical historians who will be using it quite continuously. I I would say, I suppose, I am a bit saddened that there isn't going to be a facsimile that we can immediately get onto or, or buy cheaply. A lot of our own work, going back to the database, was based on the information in the the Canterbury Wills series. And to simply be able to identify somebody, uh, pay three pounds with your credit card, and have a will downloaded as you sit in a room, was wonderful. And given how much it just cost to come up from Oxford to the National Archive, to be able to to look at 10 or 15 of these things in a day. for a modest price, was a very good um, research tool indeed. And I quite understand that you haven't been able to go further than you have done, but um, if you ever get any more money, all I can say is that it will be very useful if we as researchers could sit at our desks and have access to the uh, the real documents. Anyway, I think that's all I, I want to say at this juncture, without John to, to say more about the, the actual logs that he's been working on, but so, I hope you, you've got some sense of what a few historians are doing with this particular series, so, thank you. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of June 2010 as part of the Journeys of Discovery Surgeons at Sea, ADM 101 Research Symposium at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives.